Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast. Coming from California, here's Aaron Alvarado and David Stauffer. Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast. This is going to be one of those rare solo pods where it is just me, no guest, uh, recording late night uh, because I have some thoughts uh, and a lot to talk about. But um, in today's episode, we are going to do a handful of things. Uh, Primarily, this is going to be a tribute episode to the great and unfortunately late Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so that will be the bulk of the episode. I think we have nine or ten clips that we're going to play from different scenes we're going to talk about. So get ready for that. Uh, I mean, it's going to be all the PSH you can handle. Um, but before we get into the bulk of the pod there, I do want to touch on Golden Globes. In addition to um, just a little check-in from our last pod, which was on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, a podcast I did with uh, Trevor Walker, friend of the pod. And uh, we had something a little significant happen post-pod, uh, in the post-pod world, as I like to say. Um, but uh, one of the geniuses behind not only Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, uh, but one of the writer-directors of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the Lego movie, um, 21 Jump Street, uh, three quarters of the movie Solo. Uh, I'm talking about Phil Lord of Phil Lord and Chris Miller fame. Um, he actually retweeted a link on his Twitter account uh, to our podcast, specifically to our Spider-Verse pod. So we had a, we had sent out a link from the Brave Little Podcast uh, account and Trevor you know, subtweeted it, encouraging people to, to give it a listen if they were on the fence about whether or not they should see the movie. And... We didn't tag Phil Lord in these tweets, okay? So he is—he either has a search uh, in, in place for uh, you know any mention of Spider Verse, which I feel like there would just be millions of tweets to go through, or he's just got his team or assistant, publicist, something people that are going through. Um, but uh, he didn't just like uh, Trevor's subtweet; he retweeted it to his followers, and uh, I could hardly believe it um i uh this officially makes phil lord a friend of the pod um also our our podcast stats are are up over 500 percent, both uh, week over week and year over year so just shout out to any new listeners out there uh i don't know why i thought it'd be smart to follow up you know our <laughs> the infusion of our new audience with a solo pod uh just an individual one uh because this is certainly not where i shine but uh I guess I'm a risk taker. So uh, anyway, so it, it was cool to see Phil Lord uh, give us a little shout out there. I'd like to think, you know, uh, that he listened to the pod. I think it's doubtful. <laughs> I mean, it's like an hour and 20 minutes. Not that it's not great content. Content Trevor did great. Um, also, bad time for my mic to be like peaking on that one. My mic had some problems on that episode. So I'm super glad about that because he, if he did listen, he got to hear that. Uh, but I like to think that... <laughs> If he didn't listen to the pod, it's kind of a risky move for him to have retweeted a link to it. I don't know. I know that not all retweets equal uh, endorsements, uh, although we all really know it. Kind of, they kind of do. Um, but like, we could have been a couple of real yahoos just going on and on about uh, 
how much we loved Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and and then just gone off on like some alt-right racist tangent and he wouldn't have known what he had endorsed. Uh, thankfully, we didn't do that because we don't, you know, we're not complete villain scumbags, um, terrible human beings. But I would like to think that he would vet this. Now, clearly, I've overthought this, but um, it's literally a retweet. He hit a button. And here I am analyzing the likelihood of him actually listening to the content. But I'm going to go with the more unlikely version of this where he listened to every second of it and was just super grateful uh, and retweeted it. And so uh, even though that is like definitely not what happened. But still, it was really cool to see. Uh, and 48 hours later, he was he's up uh, on that stage of the Golden Globes accepting his Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, and so with, I mean, a whole other army of people, because you can't really make a movie like that without just an enormous army of animators and storytellers and filmmakers. I mean, it's it was quite the production. But anyway, really, really cool to see the pod get a, a little bit of uh, a little, I guess, note of recognition, a little back pat, a little, a little hat tip for Mr. Lord. And so uh, speaking of Golden Globes, I can't, I can't tell you how much I... <laughs> Uh, how much it surprises me every year, the just how meaningless this award show is. And look, they're all meaningless. I always say this. Oscars, it means nothing. Yet I still watch and I still get upset. Like I, I get upset when movies get, you know, the shaft uh, or get snubbed from getting nominated. And then I'll proceed to get mad about the movies that I that did get nominated that I want to win don't win. Like this matters. And it does matter from a from a monetary standpoint. I think winning films certainly see an uptick in attendance, and so more people would see those movies. I think that's good. And if, certainly for the individual performers, those that win actor uh, awards or director awards, they can command a higher salary. So I guess things do matter from a monetary standpoint, from a visibility standpoint. But these are just – these awards don't – I mean – <laughs> it's an industry that's giving awards to other people in their industry and there's a, with that comes of course a ton of politicking and my favorite thing my favorite especially for the academy awards my favorite academy award uh voter pastime is to nominate or award a film that they definitely didn't see i just think that's the best thing i love it when the whole point of this is like viewing this <laughs> this piece of art and this art form like you actually have to consume it uh, and they make it so easy. They send you a screener. You just have to hit play. Uh, and most of these people, I'm, I'm certain, don't watch the films that they will nominate uh, and or, or vote to win. And it's I think it's hilarious. But so in, in a category, you know, award shows for in the motion picture uh, industry, you know, in a category that's altogether meaningless, the Golden Globes have a special place <laughs> in the level of meaningless because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which I guess is a group of people that somehow convinced like some of the most famous people in the world to gather uh, on, a, on, a, you know, on an annual basis to receive an award. I guess, of course, you know, people uh, love to have their egos stroked, but like it's an it's not even a secret. It's just out in the open that this isn't real. Like the, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, like they're not real critics and that they they actively uh, are open to the lobbying and campaigning for awards. I mean, uh, I think last year um, the winner for uh, he played uh, Winston Churchill. 
gosh, why am I forgetting his name? Um, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, like, was <laughs> made no bones about it. He went to every single reception and event and thing that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, ha- Association held just so he could shake their hands, look them in the eye, and say, I really want this. And uh, you know, he took all the selfies with them. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, if you... Anyone can get one of these awards if they're, you know, if you're nominated, you can win if you just go to the events and uh, just kind of suck up to these people, talk about how grateful you are and how much you'd mean if you won and you will win. Uh, It has nothing to do with your talent level, it has nothing to do with merit. Uh, And I guess you could say that about all these award shows. But anyway, the Golden Globes is my favorite. It's my favorite to see what gets nominated. It's my favorite to see what wins. And they do it across two mediums, movies and TV. So it's just like a double whammy. Uh, and so I, I do find entertainment out of these. I, I think the main thing I look for now um, is because I'm not looking to, you know, I don't get excited about the things, even if the things that I want to win, win, it's like not really all that exciting because I know it's, it's all phony. Uh, but I'm just looking for good gifts, like those cutaway shots to famous people uh, just making a reaction, whether it's Leonardo DiCaprio laughing at Gaga a couple years ago Um any cutaway to like a Tommy Lee Jones, uh, just the, well, they're making facial expressions that I can use in reaction gifts. Like that's kind of my, the currency that I, uh, I mean, if it's a good reaction gif, I'm in, like I, I'll, I'll sit through a three hour broadcast. And so, um, the Golden Globes, man, they, boy, did they deliver this year in the absurdity. I mean, right out of the gate with the nominations, like, oh, we're in for a treat this year because, the Hollywood Foreign Press just nominated a bunch of movies, many of which aren't good, uh, many of which people did not see, themselves included, the you know, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And it's just like, oh, this is we're gonna hold an award show that's you know, with these these programs and these movies that just no one saw. This is gonna be awesome. And so, uh and yeah, they absolutely delivered this year. This is I mean, other than seeing Phil Lord up there getting, you know, Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Uh, which was a totally, that's legit, you know, um, and I really hope that they get it over Incredibles 2 at the uh, Oscars. We'll see. But other than that, and a handful of other awards like Patricia Arquette winning for Dana Mora and Mahershala Ali, I mean, most of these were pretty just silly. I mean, just consider the two best picture winners, you know, for one for comedy or musical being Green Book and one for drama being Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, I enjoyed Green Book. I've talked about that on the pod. Um, I realize why some would find it problematic. And um, if you're looking for something that is, you know, as close to the true events as possible, then maybe don't see this film. It's You're going to have a bad time. Um, but that's not one of my criteria for enjoying a movie is, you know, how historically accurate it is. I'm just really looking for a piece of entertainment. And so, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the experience of seeing Green Book. It, it's so far from the best picture of the year so i mean there's a level of absurdity with that winning um and then bohemian rhapsody is amazing that this is the the hollywood foreign press association awarded a movie that had a director quit in the middle i mean i'm not even talking about fired which technically he eventually was but he stopped showing up to set and they had to replace him and then you know because of the the uh, director's guild uh, guidelines that uh, they had original director that just stopped showing up, uh, Brian Singer. He still got the directing credit because he technically directed uh, a majority of the days of the, you know that the production was shooting, and 
And so uh, you have this awkward scenario where this movie wins, but like the director's not there because it's like super awkward. Uh, and no one mentions the director. And, you know, this is the captain of the ship usually. Right. And I, I don't think Brian Singer should be lauded for anything because I, I think he is a terrible person who's been credibly accused of terrible things. Um, but the fact is, is he, this movie won. And uh, now I wouldn't call Bohemian Rhapsody like one of the worst films of the year or anything like that. I mean, truthfully, it's a blast to watch just because it's a Queen concert. But from like a narrative standpoint, from like motion picture standpoint, if you're you know, really trying to give this film an honest critique, it's a complete mess. Like, no one in their right mind is giving Bohemian Rhapsody the best picture drama. I mean, like, come on. In a category with so many others, which is which is another one of the things that I think maybe I got some enjoyment out of this year at the Globes is that they seeded the uh, A Star is Born table right at the front. You know, you got Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga literally front row, just basically just waiting there to get their trophy. And now Lady Gaga eventually got a shared trophy for that song, uh, Shallow. But they went in there with you know, being the odds-on favorite to both win uh, Golden Globes, won Bradley Cooper for director and Lady Gaga for actress. They took home neither. And so that was shocking. Um, instead of giving the globe to Lady Gaga, they gave it to Glenn Close, who gave a performance in a film that nobody saw, literally nobody, um, which I just, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, Glenn Close is like her publicist. I mean, that's who I'm hiring when I make it in Hollywood because that person worked overtime to get Glenn. And look, no disrespect to Glenn Close. She could have given a great performance, and I do think she's a great actress. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed her in many uh, many of the films that she's done, but th it's just hilarious to see that. And, and I'm not saying Gaga deserved it necessarily, but it's just funny that there's they put them up front because they were so, just the closest path to the stage to get the award. Um, and uh, And then they give it to Glenn Close, who was like, you know, just not the way she was expecting that, to get that award, which is just pretty pretty crazy. Um, uh, another thing I noticed, uh, just a handful of other things on the Golden Globes here. Um, the uh, they had a table for the everyone a part of the film Black Klansman. Uh, John David Washington was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, that's Denzel Washington's son, who I think did a great job in the movie. It was definitely one of the better movies of 2018. But John, <laughs> poor John. Had to bring his dad. Uh, I'd like to think that he tried to not bring his dad to the Golden Globes. Like, hey, dad, mine's in this one out. Like, you're kind of, you know, maybe like one of the three biggest movie stars uh, in, in history. And, you know, you, the camera knows how to find you. And like, this is kind of my night for the first time. So maybe like I'll take mom instead or something. And he's like, no, no, I'm going. I'm I'm going with you. You know, <laughs> and because I just felt bad every time that they did a cutaway to John David Washington. I mean, he he was literally just on the edge of the frame uh, because his dad, they, they just centered his. And look, it's not Denzel's fault. The, you know, the camera people are just like Denzel Washington, you know, and it's just they go to John David Washington. And sure enough, it's primarily Denzel filling the frame with it. Just John right on the right on the side. Of, I just feel bad for the guy. I feel super, super bad. Uh, I hope he does have a career uh, that can truly stand, you know, aside and different from his father. I mean. I don't think there's no way he's going to have a career that uh, eclipses his father's, but like no one will. And so I just hope that he's able to carve out, you know, something that, uh, that he can be proud of because I just felt bad for him all night long. Uh, 
the the last thing in the in the TV category, I was especially tickled um, at uh, which one <laughs> which which one best TV show in the comedy category. Uh, it was the film The Kaminsky Method on Netflix. And the only reason I know what that is is because Netflix has tried, you know, advertising it to me at the top. And every time I'm like, hard pass, okay? Like, I'm not into, like, the geriatric genre of movies, like, for old people, which is exactly what that is. It's Michael Douglas and uh, Alan Arkin, both of which I have respect for. Both of those, uh, you know, both of those guys have made some some great movies. And, look, I, I really look forward to watching The Kaminsky Method, you know, when I'm 67 or older, potentially. But, like, not... Not anything I'm watching right now. And it turns out no one watched the Kaminsky Method. Absolutely no one. But that didn't stop the Golden Globes from giving Michael Douglas the best actor. Uh, and Kaminsky Method, the best show, best comedy. I mean, consider that it, it not only, well, it beat Barry, a show I'm really big on. The Good Place, a major popular show. People love The Good Place. Uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, another one that's, you know, people adore. Um also, they didn't even nominate Atlanta, which I find strange considering that's the greatest show on television right now. So, I mean, obviously you take all this with a grain of salt, but I mean, when they did it, I, I just like, <laughs> when they announced Kaminsky Method, I just shook my head and was just like, well done. Like, you've outdone yourself, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Like, you you really just wanted to give Michael Douglas a couple of trophies and uh, just no one has seen Kaminsky Method. Uh, if anyone listening to this, if you have seen Kaminsky Method, please tweet us at Brave Little Pod. I want to know your favorite episode. Uh, I, I want to know your favorite old person joke that comes from it. Uh, and uh, no, I promise I will check it out. But I, I can promise that because I'm certain no one is going to tweet at us because no one has seen the Kaminsky Method. I mean, there's a whole genre, right? I, the, what I call affectionately the geriatric genre of films that are made just for old people. And look, old people love movies. I love movies now. I know in my retirement, I'm going to just see everything. I, I kind of already do. But there's this special genre. Uh, there are movies that I typically try to avoid right now just because I want to save them for uh, you know the, the many, many hours that I have in, in uh, hopefully in retirement. But, but like these movies are, I mean, just off the top of my head, in the geriatric genre, it's like the uh, Marigold Hotel movies, the best exotic Marigold Hotel, the, the bucket list with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, literally about two old people who are, you know, sick and want to, you know, complete everything on their bucket list. You have movies like Last Vegas about just a bunch of really old men who want, you know, one last uh, go at some debaucherous behavior in Vegas. Something's got to give. I'm seeing a pattern here. There's a lot of Jack Nicholson here. Uh, I mean, The Intern. That's a recent one, the Anne Hathaway movie where it's like, I mean, old people love this. The idea that Robert De Niro is going to go be an intern at this Manhattan, uh, like, you know, startup slash, you know, uh, I guess this kind of upstart uh, company that's really starting to take off. And, uh, of course, he's there to come in and mentor the CEO, Anne Hathaway. And old people just love that. Uh, and look, I'm not, you know, I'm going to see all these, I'm going to watch every one of these, uh, including everything Clint Eastwood has made in the last 15 years. I mean, Grand Torino recently, the mule, which I did see, I mean, this is, this is geriatric gold. I mean, this is great. Uh, when I worked at the movie theaters in high school, that was always my favorite, just in the middle of the day on a weekday, you just, you'd get the, you know, the, 
uh, the nearby nursing homes would bring in their shuttles and they'd get so excited. They'd get so excited for any film based on a John Grisham uh, novel uh, or anything done either made by or starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, and so anyway, it's just funny that uh, the Golden Globes decided to honor a TV show from that genre. Uh, you know, more power to them. More power to them. All right, enough Golden Globes. Uh, I really, I went longer than I wanted to. Uh, they really didn't deserve that much uh, riffing, but there you go. I do want to get to the important stuff. I want to get to the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. We are approaching the five-year mark of his passing, which, um, look, you know, this happens every year, you know, celebrities pass away, some old, some before their time. Uh, it's sad when it happens, but I can tell you for me, there's none that I was more devastated by than the news that Philip Seymour Hoffman had passed. Uh, and that's not just because he was young, 46, uh, but because I can confidently say Philip Seymour Hoffman is my favorite actor of all time. Uh, and I think I kind of always knew that. Um, I don't know if I'd ever like consciously said that out loud or thought that, you know, while he was alive. Uh, but the reality is it's absolutely the truth. And I'm going to go over all of those reasons and share some clips of some of my favorite performances of his. Um, but I just think that we haven't had an actor like this ever. And I don't know that we will again. I mean, he is, you know, like a lot of actors was came from theater. Um, and had a love of theater, was, you know, immersed in that. Um, but was this guy that started as a character actor and would do these bit parts as villains or sidekicks. You know, and um, and then he really blossomed into something that was, I mean, he could do anything. And, and this isn't, you know, this is not someone that has these striking good looks. You know, he just had this power and this charisma and this screen presence that just demanded your attention. Um, and yet he did, I mean, the variety, the, the, like the difference in all the, his performances, just going through his IMDb, it's really shocking. I mean, yes, he was a character actor. Yes. We've had character actors before and we will, you know, always have character actors. Um, but this guy just brought a gravity to it that, I mean, in a way that I truly believe he could make any movie watchable. I'm talking about movies that are otherwise garbage, bad. If he's in it, even in a bit part, you couldn't go in at least knowing that Philip Seymour Hoffman was giving his all and that usually, almost always, was worth seeing. I mean, I think I'm going to later on play a clip from Along Came Polly, which I think is not a good movie. It's really not. It's not a classic by any means, but... He is just, I mean, it's its almost embarrassing that uh, how good he is in this compared to the stars, which were, which were Ben Stiller, who was at the peak of his powers as a comedic actor. And, of course, Jennifer Aniston, one of the most famous actresses ever. And yet Philip Seymour Hoffman, this, this pudgy, you know, sidekick character, absolutely steals the show and is makes that movie worth watching just for his scenes. I mean, it's just, I, yeah, it was automatic for me. If he was in it, I was going to see it because I knew what I was getting. I was getting to watch a master of his craft. Uh, and that was, to me, just so exciting. Um, so the the opening 
paragraph of his obituary in the New York Times certainly sums it up or says it better than I could just to give you an idea of kind of what the industry viewed him as certainly in the New York Times which is the paper of record um, the I should say the failing New York Times I'm just kidding um, but this is this is the opening line of his obit Philip Seymour Hoffman perhaps the most ambitious and widely admired American actor of his generation who gave three-dimensional nuance to a wide range of sidekicks, villains, and leading men on screen and embraced some of the theater's most burdensome roles on Broadway, died on Sunday at an apartment in Greenwich Village he was renting as an office. He was 46. So that line, um, perhaps the most ambitious and widely admired American actor of his generation. That is not hyperbole. I would, I would remove perhaps. I, I mean, I do think he's the most ambitious and widely admired American actor. And maybe not even of this generation. I mean, when all is said and done, it, could, I, it might be any generation. Um, and I, I do like their emphasis on the three-dimensional nuance to sidekicks, villains, leading men. Like, I mean, he did, he did it all. Uh, just going through his filmography quickly, and this isn't all of them. I mean, just early on, I mean, Twister is probably one of the first things I saw him in before I really recognized who he was. But movies like Boogie Nights, The Big Lebowski, Magnolia, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Almost Famous, 25th Hour, Cold Mountain, Mission Impossible 3, Along Came Polly, Charlie Wilson's War, uh, Synecdoche, oh, I'm going to butcher that word, Synecdoche, uh, New York. Nope, that's the last time I'm going to attempt saying that. Um, that, was, that movie is as hard to say as it is to, to actually uh, process and digest viewing. And those of you who've seen that movie, uh, the, uh, the Michelle Gondry film, or Charlie Kaufman film, excuse me, uh, you will know what I mean by that. Uh, it's, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty out there movie, but um, remarkable nonetheless. Also, Doubt, The Ides of March, Moneyball, I love that movie. The Master, uh, probably his single greatest performance. Um, this is, one thing I think is interesting looking at all these movies is that <laughs> he went toe-to-toe with some of the very best. Uh, and, and when I say very best, maybe I mean some of the most famous, certainly some of the most talented. Um, he never had the recognition of these people, but like he had, for, as a scene partner, he has outshined the likes of Tom Hanks, Jeff Bridges, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Mark Wahlberg, Joaquin Phoenix, Meryl Streep, who he went toe-to-toe with in some of the most electric performances I've ever seen. Um, Laura Linney, Matt Damon, Edward Norton, Ben Stiller, he went... As I mentioned in a line game, Paul, he went to toe to, to, to he went toe to toe with at a comedic level, and he is not a comedian. He'd be the first one to say that. Yet he he was funnier than the funny guy. I mean, it, it's just remarkable talent that could pull that off. Um, so I do want to jump into some of these performances because I think they're just I don't know. I think by recording this pod, I'm not just shining a light on his career. I mean, people know who he is, but in a way, it's almost kind of like a reminder. It's like I want to preserve the fact that he was so good and just remind everyone and, and listen to these as they're like these little snippets are like little treats. Each one of them is just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like we have, you know, the Sistine Chapel and the David and, the, you know, we have these great works of art left over that that, you know, garner, you know, throngs of tourists. And in my way, I guess this is me putting out these little clips so you know people can gather around and listen. Uh, especially all our new listeners who have come by way of Phil Lord. Thank you. Um, and so I have, I think, nine clips that I'm going to play. I've, I've categorized them um, in three buckets. And those three buckets are 
uh, comedic, so comedic parts, uh, in control. Uh, what I mean by that is someone that's kind of um, someone of authority, someone who is trying to evoke like they have things under control. They know what they're doing. You know, they um, they're the expert. And then the third one is what I'm calling loud with purpose, because any actor can raise their voice and be loud and shout and try to make it seem like they're angry because they're loud. But like you can't you can't just shout and think that that's good acting. Uh, And a lot of times I feel like it's not because you've got to be able to control uh, that shouting. And I think no one did that better than Philip Seymour Hoffman to evoke the motion through the the volume in a way that was like weirdly nuanced. It wasn't just this one like note, like, oh, he's loud, so he's angry. It's like, oh, he is, there's emotion coming through. And so I actually, I want to start there. I want to start with the loud with purpose. The first clip is from um, one of his lesser known films um, called The Savages with Laura Linney. And uh, I actually quite like this movie. It's one I discovered of his um, after he passed as I made through the rest of his filmography. Um, and this is just, it's a story about him and his sister played by Laura Linney. And they're trying to care for their ailing father. And it's just about that, um, just the trials of being kids, you know, children of, you know, taking care of your parents uh, in their advanced age and the emotions that come with that. Uh, in this scene in particular, they're, they're, they've kind of hit a breaking point where they're talking about the facility that they're going to put their father in and how nice it should be and what, you know, uh, and I think they're getting uh, pretty picky or at least Laura Linney's character is about like what they're setting him up with and um, and then this is where uh, yeah Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of snaps at his sister about this this whole thing so he- here's the clip nothing wrong with that situation that situation is fine but he's never going to adjust to it if we keep yanking him out of there all right and actually this upward mobility fixation of yours it's counterproductive and frankly pretty selfish selfish yeah because it's not about dad it's about you you and your guilt that's what these places prey upon I- I happen to think it's nicer here. Of course you do. Because you're the consumer that they want to target. You're the guilty demographic. The landscaping, the neighborhoods of care, they're not for the residents, they're for the relatives. People like you and me who don't want to admit to what's really going on here. Which is what, John? People are dying, Wendy. Right inside that beautiful building right now, it's a horror show. Right, and, and, and all this wellness propaganda and the landscaping, it's just there to obscure the miserable fact that people die. And death is gaseous and gruesome, and it's filled with piss and rotten stink. Wow. Yeah. I lo- I mean, yeah. I, I think that clip is powerful both because of the performance as well as the writing. I mean, what he's saying is like there's a truism there that's like, yeah. But, uh, but communicated in a way that I really feel like uh, only Philip Seymour Hoffman could do. So the second clip in the loud with purpose category is from the film Doubt with Meryl Streep and Amy Adams, uh, Viola Davis. I think all of them were nominated for this film, if I recall, although none of them won. Um, But, I mean, Meryl Streep, you know, uh, widely considered among the very best, if not the best, and seeing them as scene partners is just electric. Uh, The movie as a whole, I can take it or leave it. It's not bad. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's good, uh, but these performances, but especially these two, and they have a couple of scenes together that are just, uh, like I say, electric. Um, and this is one of them. And this is just to give a little background. If you haven't seen it, you know, this is a, a, a sister, a nun, I should say, uh, as part of this Catholic, not just uh, parish, but 
um, a school. And she is certain that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who is a priest, um, has uh, participated in some um, nefarious behavior with one of the altar boys. And she's certain of it. And she is trying to get him removed. And he confronts her about this crusade, uh, both to uh, question her of why she's doing it, as well as maintain his innocence that uh, that she has it wrong. And it's uh, it's it's a powerful clip. Here it is. Now come in. A third party would be required. Yeah, what was Donald's mother doing here? We were having a chat. About what? A third party would truly be required. No, sister. No third party. Me and you are due for a talk. You have to stop this campaign against me. You can stop it. At any time. How? Confess and resign. You are attempting to destroy my reputation. Who keeps opening my window? What are you doing in this school? I'm trying to do good. Even more to the point. What are you doing in the priesthood? You are single-handedly holding this school and this parish back. From what? Progressive education and a welcoming church. You can't distract me, Father. This is not about my behavior. No, it's about yours. No, this is yours. about your unfounded suspicions. That's right. I Just have Just leave suspicions. that. It's not important. I will decide. What's important? Why do you suspect me? What have I done? You gave that boy wine, and you let him take the blame. That's completely untrue. Did you talk to Mr. McGinn? All McGinn knows is that the boy drank wine. He doesn't know how he came to drink it. Did his mother have something to add to that? No. So that's it? I am not satisfied. Ask the boy then. Why he'd protect you. Why would he do that? Because you have seduced him. You're insane. You've got it in your head that I corrupted this child after giving him wine and nothing I say will change that. That's right. But this has nothing to do with the wine. Not really. You've had a fundamental mistrust of me before this incident. It was you that warned Sister James to be on the lookout, wasn't it? That's true. So you admit it! Certainly. Why? I know people. That's not good enough. If you haven't seen Doubt, I would highly recommend it. Again, for those two performances alone, it's it's worth watching. It is, uh, it is unadulterated Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's really great. So I'm gonna move into the comedic category, and again, for someone who is not a comedian, this is a very funny man. Uh, this first clip is from a film called Charlie Wilson's War, which is starring Tom Hanks. And uh, there's a lot of good clips from this one, but I, I picked just a. Just a little bit one where he's trying to have a conversation with the Tom Hanks character who's playing, who's a politician. Um, and uh, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, I'll just roll a clip. Goss. Yeah, the Swiss make an anti-aircraft gun called the Arlecon. Listen, Charlie. 20 millimeter cannon, high rate of fire. Oh, I know the Arlecon. Don't forget the limo driver. What do you mean? Oh, you took a... Uh limo from the casino at the airport, maybe. It's easy enough to track down the limo driver, and him a subpoena, ask him if anything was going on in the back seat. So, you know, in terms of cleaning up this... Were you listening at the door? I wasn't listening at the door. Were you standing at the door no. listening to me? How could he even... That's a thick door! You stood there and you listened to me? I wouldn't stand at the door. Don't be an idiot. I bugged the scotch bottle. What? 
Uh, it's got a little transmitter on it. I got a little thing in my ear. Get past it. Don't believe this. Take it easy. I was going to tell you about it, but I'd leave the room for a second because you were getting indicted. Oh, you're getting indicted. Is there a camera in here? Uh, it's a little paranoid. That's right. Will you take the bug off my scotch bottle now? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, look, I love Tom Hanks as much as the next person. He's one of our greatest treasures. Uh, but if you watch Charlie Wilson's War, uh, and if you're paying attention, you'll see um, Philip Seymour Hoffman outacts him in every scene that they have together. Uh, and that's not, again, not taking away from Tom Hanks, who I adore. Um, but like, there's a versatility there that um, clearly Philip Seymour Hoffman has. And and Tom Hanks doesn't. I mean, Tom's trying to, I mean, he's burdened with trying to do this accent and, and all, you know, and, it, you know, granted, Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't have to do it, but it's just clear that like, well, one of these is like a better actor, um, not necessarily more bankable star, not necessarily more, you know, um, more likable per se. Uh, certainly Tom Hanks uh, possesses those qualities, but Philip Seymour Hoffman is just like, oh, this he's, he's just better. Uh, now, here, here's a clip from a film towards the beginning of his career. This is, again, the, the, um, of the Big Lebowski. So this is a scene he has with Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, um, as the dude is waiting to meet the character that the film's named after, Mr. Lebowski, who he hasn't met yet. And Philip Seymour Hoffman plays his kind of young assistant who's both nervous and um, very proper and... Uh, here, the dude who's kind of, you know, for those of you that haven't seen The Big Lebowski, is kind of this, like, uh, unkept, kind of hippie-ish character. Uh, and he's going across this wall full of photos and accolades and certificates and trophies and all sorts of things, kind of pointing at each one and asking questions uh, to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the assistant, who is try who's doing a combination of both being nervous at how much uh, Jeff Bridges' character is, like, how close he's standing to the trophies the fact he's touching them, uh, as well as try and answer his questions with the level of like pride that he has in his boss. And it's just kind of a funny balance that I, I put in the comedic category. Uh, obviously a classic movie. And uh, yeah, so here's, uh, here's his clip from The Big Lebowski. This is a study. As you can see, the various commendations, awards, Jeffrey citations, honorary degrees, mm. etc. Mm, very impressive. Oh, please feel free to inspect them. Oh, no, I'm not uh, really... Uh... Oh, please, please. That is the key to the city of Pasadena, which Mr. Lebowski received two years ago in recognition of his various civic... Uh... Oh, that's the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce Business Achiever Award, which is given... Well, not necessarily given every year. Hey, given only when there's a uh, worthy somebody... Is this, is this him with uh, Nancy? Yes, indeed. That is Mr. Lebowski with the First Lady, yes. Oh. Let's take in when Mrs. That's Ray uh, Lebowski on the left there? Yeah, of course, Mr. Lebowski on the left. So he's a, uh, you know, a, a uh, handicapped uh, guy? Mr. Lebowski is disabled, yes. Uh, this picture was taken when Mrs. Reagan was first lady of the nation. Yes, yes, not of California. Chuck? Uh, in fact, he met privately with the president, though unfortunately there wasn't enough time for a photo opportunity. Oh, Nancy's pretty good. Oh, wonderful woman. We're uh, very happy to... These are... Uh... Oh, those are Mr. Lebowski's children, oh, different so mothers, to speak. Huh? No, they're not. Racially, he's pretty cool. <laughs> 
They're not literally his children. They're the little Lebowski urban achievers, inner city children of promise, but without the necessary means for a necessary means for a higher education. So Mr. Lebowski is committed to sending all of them to college. Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love it. I love it because Philip Seymour Hoffman really hadn't been discovered quite yet. I mean, this is pretty early on in his career. And talk about getting in and the right movies at the right time. It's amazing how many classics he was in, even if he just had just little bit parts. But uh, he's just perfect in this uh, nervous, uppity assistant. Uh, like that whole exchange about <laughs> about Nancy Reagan. Like, Nancy's pretty good, but he wanted to insist that he also met the president, but just didn't have enough time for a picture. It's everything about that clip is really cracks me up. Um, okay, so... Uh, lastly, in comedic, we have that uh, that clip from Along Came Polly, but I referenced earlier, which I grow more and more convinced that Philip Seymour Hoffman realized that this movie wasn't going to be very good, and so he just takes it upon himself to just hijack it. It's just let's just I'm going to give 120 percent and just give some give people something. Uh, now this scene is uh, him. He's playing with the the title character is played or the main character I should say is played by Ben Stiller and this is one of his you know uh, childhood friends um, and uh, that and so they're playing a game of pickup basketball right now and it's hilarious just because Philip Seymour Hoffman's character play he just has this confidence throughout the film that he can do anything and that includes the way he's playing on the basketball court. Uh, he's yelling things like rain dance, white chocolate, and he's just throwing it up and he's clearly terrible. He just doesn't, he's never shot a basketball before, but that's not stopping him from just, you know, <laughs> exuding this level of confidence. Um, there's, the line towards the end of this clip really, really cracks me up. Um, but they're playing basketball just to give the context while Ben Stiller's trying to talk to him about how he kind of reconnected uh, with a girl that they grew up with and how he's he thinks it's fate and that he wants to ask her out. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is trying to tell him why that's a bad idea. Here's the clip. So I did a lot of thinking last night. And there's something I'm pretty excited about. What's up? Nice. Let it rain! Well, I feel like I might be ready to move on. You know, get my life back on track. So, I'm going to ask Polly Prince on a date. Oh, that's a mistake. She's not right for you, dude. Rain dance! T! T! Come out. I'm burning. My lungs are burning. Come out. Come out. So why do you think Polly's so wrong for me? You don't even know this girl, Ruben. You haven't seen her since seventh grade. How different could she be? I mean, she was a senior delegate at the Model UN. She was in the chess club. She was a math leap. I mean, her, her yearbook stats are really impressive. Did she see a tattoo on her back? Yeah, so what? Mathletes don't wear body art like that. Enough said. Ball in! <laughs> Mathletes don't wear body art like that. Enough said. Ball in! It, it cracks me up every time. <laughs> my, my legs are burning. My legs are burning. It's just, it's really something. Uh, Anyway, I it at the end of this film he gives this uh he has this monologue this scene where he uh essentially has to stand in to do the job uh that Ben Stiller's character does, which is assess uh people for I think life insurance, in this case a famous person who does dangerous things and um he just gives this he just has the scene where he just owns the room and it's so funny. And so again, it's rare that I recommend a, a movie that I don't think is good, but I will in this case just because Philip Seymour Hoffman is that good in it. Uh, all right, so the last uh, 
category is what I call in control. And so there's a few, I, you know, I try to bucket these neatly. Uh, this is, there's going to be a, a spectrum of what I mean by in control here, but basically where he plays the, uh, the person that has complete control of the situation or is the expert, uh, you know, whether it is a villain or in this case, the first clip, he is a mentor. And this clip is from the film Almost Famous. I've played clips uh, from this film in past pods. I am obsessed with every scene that he is, uh, that he's in in this movie, which is not many, where he plays um, a real life person, a rock critic uh, named Lester Bangs. And he is mentoring the main character, who is this um, young teenager who has this dream of writing for the Rolling Stone and being a rock journalist. And so Lester Bangs uh, provides him advice as he tours with this band. Um, and so this scene right here is a late night conversation where uh, the main character has this realization that he's gotten too close to the band, that he can't write about them objectively because they have been treating him you know, like he's one of their own and he's become friends with them. And Lester Bangs explains why you can't do that. So here is that clip. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Is they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. Now, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. Then they get the girls. But we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Because yeah, great art is about you know, guilt and longing and Love disguises sex, and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. Yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. Yeah. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is it my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to him, be honest and unmerciful. He just plays that part so well. This wise, you know, I've been there before. I'm this jaded rock critic. Like, I don't have to be doing this, have, you know, having this frank conversation with you, but I care enough about you to, to tell you just how it is. Um, and just great dialogue that's, you know, so Cameron Crowe wrote some terrific lines there, uh, but just delivered to perfection by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, the next couple of clips uh, are some are some real good ones, real doozies. Uh, I love that he can play a part like Lester Bangs in Almost Famous and then go be the villain in the new Mission Impossible movie when, it, uh, when I say the new. But it was a reboot at the time because they, they had taken a break uh, from the franchise after the second one had lackluster critical response. But J.J. Abrams reboots the Mission Impossible franchise, brings in Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain. Uh, and while he does have some really good, um, you know, loud but with purpose um, uh, scenes, this is one where 
um, every time I see this clip, I just think this guy means business. He is serious. Um, this is right after Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. They've kidnapped the bad guy, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, and he, Philip Seymour Hoffman's coming, realizing what's going on, like who he is and what is kind of happening here. And, and he just has this, he's, he's clearly upset, but he just has this very calm way of telling him like, you know, like, do you like, what's going to happen next? And you believe every, like every word that he says, like, like, do you have a girlfriend or a wife? Cause, cause you know, I'm, I'm going to find them, you know, and I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to, you know, uh, it's just he delivers those lines and we get, you know, so many action movies, tons of movies where we have a scene just like this with similar dialogue, but it's just delivered in a, in a way that you never doubt at all that this dude means exactly what he says. And so here's that clip from Mission Impossible 3. I was you in the bathroom. And you're going to tell us everything. Every buyer you've worked with, every organization. What the hell is your name? Names, contacts, inventory lists. You have a, a wife, girlfriend. Because you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to find her. Whoever she is, I'm going to find her and I'm going to hurt her. I'm going to make her bleed and cry and call out your name. And you're not going to be able to do shit. You know why? What is it, Rabbit's Foot? Because you're going to be this close to dead. And who is the buyer? And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. I'm going to ask you one more time. What's your name? What is it, Rabbit's Foot? Who are you? And who's the buyer? You don't have any idea what the hell's going on, do you? I mean, you saw what I did to your little blonde friend at the factory, right? That's so good. It's so good because you can tell Tom Cruise is trying to just play it cool. He's not, Ethan Hunt is like, I'm not even going to acknowledge what you're saying. And I'm just going to continue on with my questions. But the look on Ethan Hunt's face is one of like, he's got terror in his eyes. Where he's just like, nope, I'm not listening. I'm not going to let it get to me. But it's getting to him. What the guy is saying is getting to him. It's working. It's really incredible. And so uh, just the way you can do that scene without yelling or jump, you know, acting, you know, hysterical uh, is just, there's again, there's a power. There's a power to it, a gravity that he brings to these performances. And lastly, I think this is his single best performance. It's also one of his few where he's the leading man. And that is in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's film, The Master. Uh, to give a little background about what The Master is, it's kind of a pseudo a science story of the beginnings of Scientology. It's not actually Scientology. They call it something else. Um, but it's very much mirrored after that. And, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing this L. Ron Hubbard character who uh, who has kind of leading this group of people, um, which some would describe as a cult. And uh, and he has all of the hallmarks of a, a personality that would you know be the leader of a cult. He just speaks with such authority and which uh, with such surety of what he's saying, you know, uh, that he speaks in logic and factual and, you know, and he's, he's constantly trying to reaffirm in people's minds that he is uh, the master in this situation. And so anyway, th- this is group of people that he leads. They've come across this kind of drifter character played by Joaquin Phoenix, who initially uh, they bring him in as someone who's just looking for work. But of course, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, character uh kind of makes him a project in a way to kind of not just convert him to their cause, but to fix him, right? This is a character that has uh, fought in war, clearly suffering from PTSD, has major, major mental health issues and and is a kind of a broken person. And 
So Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, wants to use him as an example of why their religion, their methods, their philosophies will work. But uh, there, there's a great scene, a processing scene that I would recommend you checking out if you haven't seen the film. I'm not going to play that clip. I'm actually going to play the clip where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman first meets Joaquin Phoenix. And you'll see where he tries to establish that that authority, that he's in control, uh, and that he's someone that uh, he can both trust and someone that uh, kind of has, you know, all the knowledge. So here's the clip from the master. You shouldn't work in your condition. No, I can work. You're aberrated. I'm not. Know what that means? No. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? These problems you have? (laughs) I don't have any problems. I don't know what I told you, but if you have work for me to do, I can do it. You seem so familiar to me. What do you do? I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if, if I got out of hand last night. It's cold in those homes. Don't apologize. You're a scoundrel. <laughs> I, uh, I love the acting in that scene. I love the writing in the scene. It's the little things. Um, the, uh, you know, him telling him he's aberrated. He's like, no, I'm not. Do you know what that means? No. Uh, and just this, him using the words that he uses, the way he talks about what he is. Uh, I, lo- I wish I had the guts. I always think about this in my head when people, when I meet people for the first time, you know, at a, you know, like a wife, maybe my wife's, uh, company party or, um, you know, in, in any scenario where people are trying to get to know my background and they ask like, Oh, what do you do in my head? Like, I want so badly to this, to the stranger to respond to that question with, I do many, many things. I'm a writer a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher, but above all, I'm a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. And just just like see their response. Like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I just uh, work at the Home Depot down the street. Um, no, it's just like, it's just this most absurd way to respond. Like, what do you do? Like, I, I, I just think it's hilarious. But uh, in this case, of course, Philip Seymour often can can pull that off, the absurdity of this character and get people to believe him because it, he is someone in real life of that charisma that he can put into this role to make it all the more believable. Uh, this is an interesting movie just because I think the first two thirds of it are a masterpiece and the last third is like such a mess that it's like hard for me to recommend the film to people just because it's not totally complete. But uh, once again, you know, performances can be worth it to you, even in movies where the narratives can be a mess. This is one of those because Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman both, I mean, it's just both of them at the very best uh, that I've seen, so, certainly so far from Joaquin Phoenix, and I would say the very best from Philip Seymour Hoffman, period. Uh, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman went on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, not for this, or excuse me, Best Actor. Um, he didn't win for this film, uh, but he did win for the film uh, Capote, which I haven't played a clip from. Frankly, I don't really care for the film all that much. I think it's a super great film. His performance is incredible and very different than most of what I've played here because he embodies the voice and the mannerisms of the real-life character of Truman Capote. Um, but uh, 
am grateful that he got the best uh, best actor Oscar, um, at least for one of these performances. He did get nominated three other times, uh, and that was for The Master, which he totally should have won. And then Charlie Wilson's War, which we played a clip from earlier, as well as Doubt, which we played a clip from. Really should have won for all of these. But uh, that's also coming from someone who thinks or considers Philip Seymour Hoffman to be the greatest actor of all time. So uh, anyway, that, that, that about wraps it up because um, we are uh, about at the hour mark, and that's as much as I can do on my own. And so anyway, go watch a Philip Seymour Hoffman movie that you haven't seen before. I, oh, if this pod has done anything uh, for you or has inspired you to do anything, it, please just look at his IMDb. Look at the films that you haven't seen, whether they're ones that you've heard of that people have recommended or ones you've never even heard of, and watch it. And I can, I'm confident uh, in saying that you will find a good performance, even if it's not a good movie. Uh, that's how good this guy was. That's how sad it was that he died at the age of 46 uh, five years ago. Um, but he's got a body of work that's that will stand the test of time. And so this is uh, my tribute to the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brave Little Podcast. Hold on to your butts. 